time, the threes and fours are dismissed to go out. Happy New Year to everyone here. And if you have your Bible with you, uh, we are continuing through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, today we are in the eighth chapter of Mark. Uh, now, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, one of our welcome time, a team would gladly uh, bring you a Bible. Just lift your hand, keep it raised. Uh, they will come by and hand you a Bible. Today we are covering verses 1 through 21 today. Now, before we dive in, um, if you've ever really realized as we gather around God's Word on Sunday morning, we tend to follow kind of a basic uh, pattern, an order of worship. We open in prayer, usually, right? We sing songs uh, picked based on the text that we are teaching through that day. We read Scripture that points to the theme of today's message, of which our, our worship team did a fantastic job today. We present the Word. We expose its meaning. We usually teach a few truths, uh, a few takeaways. We sing a few more songs in response to that specific text. We worship through tithing. We go through some announcements, and we are commissioned to go and make disciples until the end of the age, and Jesus will be with us. Now, while the songs and the texts that we teach from usually look a little bit different, the basic idea, if we're being faithful, is usually the same. The message is the gospel. We approach every Sunday morning, in fact, within, uh, in mind with the implied truth that God's character, expressed through His Word, is perfect and right and holy. We come to terms every single Sunday with the fact that our sinful character is not perfect and right and holy. In fact, it is so unperfect, we are deserving of eternal separation from a God who is, in fact, perfect, right, and holy. But along with that, the central message every single Sunday morning involves one. As we've just celebrated over Christmas, the Messiah, the promised one, right? He, Jesus, would have the character that we couldn't have. Jesus would make the payment for our sins, and He would do so requiring no payment from us. He would take what we deserve. Now our response to that message of God's grace, I pray every week in and week out, is that we see our character up against God's character. We repent of our sin that landed right on Jesus and trust that there is no other way but through Jesus to be saved. And I pray that every Sunday morning we are satisfied with such a message. So it seems simple enough. So um, why, even though every service we, we do different things, uh, pick different texts, highlight different passages, um, why do we every week in and week out highlight the same basic idea, the same basic message? doesn't really seem too hard to forget. In fact, we could boil it down and just say, holy God, sinful man, redeeming Jesus, faith of response, excuse me, of faith. Or is this message something that is far more forgetful, that we are far more forgetful of, sorry, than we realize? Let's pray that we might seek an answer to such a question. Heavenly Father, we praise You, Father, for this day. We thank You for this time that we are able to come together, Father. I thank You for Your words. Father, I pray that they would penetrate hearts. Father, that You would guide me, allow my logic, my thinking to take a back seat. Father, to your words. 
Lord, we praise you for all that you do. We thank you for helping us remember this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, in Mark, the eighth chapter, starting in verse 1, it reads, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And that a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Hopefully right off the bat you notice something in the first nine verses at least, something really strikingly familiar. Turn back to Mark chapter 6, verse 34. The passage reads, When he came and went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Now friends, why would Mark, alongside Peter, decide to include almost the same miracle twice? 
And if we know who is the ultimate author of this Scripture, God Himself had to inspire Mark and therefore Peter alongside Him these words and their placement. So why would God decide to include again the almost same miracle again? You see, one could easily argue that they're giant miracles in which food is literally created right out of thin air. But is that all that's going on? If we're reading this the way that it was intended, meaning straight through, hopefully this would create a speed bump in our reading and cause us to do exactly what we did. Go back and, go, go back and look at Jesus' previous mass-feeding miracle and ask the question, what is our author, and most importantly, God, trying to teach us? What is He trying to do? Now before we go any further, I, I, I do want to help us set the context of what's happening. In fact, go all the way back to the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And I believe it's important to call attention excuse me, to a sentence that Jesus spoke at the very beginning of this Gospel. In Mark 1.15, the words with which Jesus first speaks and begins His ministry in Galilee, He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Now that seems simple enough. But if we understand, pay close attention, if we understand the true character of Jesus Christ, Jesus' command would have to mean that at this moment, and for all moments in this time and every time after this, the audience to whom Jesus was speaking, and by extension us today, are to repent and believe in the Gospel, meaning press the gas and go and never let up. The very way that Jesus spoke these words originally meant that unashamedly for this command to be carried out without interruption, without failure, without lapse in judgment or absence of mind. Friends, we know this command as faith. Jesus shared the Gospel in that very verse. Simply, if faith were a coin, repentance and belief would be simply different sides of the same coin. You can't have true, responsive belief in Jesus without repenting of the sins that He died for. You can't repent of sin unless you believe in the Jesus that allowed it. But, um, if you give the words of Christ the esteem that they deserve, When the God of the universe asks you to do something, He doesn't mean anything halfway. While Jesus' words do seem simple enough, Jesus' command is actually an impossible one for us to follow. That we might always live in a constant state of repentance and belief. And sadly, if we look through the course of human history to develop a biblical theology around this thought, we see Adam and Eve right from the very beginning forgetting God's one command and being cast out of the garden. We see the Israelites in Egypt at the foot of Mount Sinai forgetting the covenant they had just made with God for millennia afterwards. The people that God chose to represent Him to the whole world would time and time again forget and at, flat out, flat, at times flat out rebel from the promises they made to God. So now Jesus struts into the world as somehow if the human race has just gotten better with age. He declares His kingdom is at hand and the command to, for us to repent and commands excuse me, to repent and believe in the Gospel and seemingly make no room that we are to ever forget such a command. 
But you see, there, there's something that at this point in his ministry, King Jesus does something peculiar. Something uncharacteristic of a king. Better yet, the God of the universe should have to do. He begins teaching. He begins making disciples of himself. He displays his authority over sickness and disease, weather, physics, matter, as we see today. But we see that, that, that we see and excuse me, we, we see that many declare that Jesus' teaching with authority is something different. There's something different about his teaching. He moves with immediacy through Galilee. And now into, into Gentile lands, not just to be a healer, but to teach the message of the kingdom. In fact, he is teaching, his teaching ministry is paramount. So paramount to all that he does. As modern readers, we have to ask the question, what is Jesus teaching us here? And today's miracle is of no, no exception. In fact, today's text, I believe, helps us highlight a very important dimension to Jesus' teaching. Something we all desperately need. See, the reason Mark would include the almost same miracle twice is because of our first truth today is that Jesus is not only teaching the Gospel. He is constantly reteaching the Gospel. So why do we come into contact with almost the same miracle twice? Because we can easily glean again that Jesus is a God of compassion. Both stories make that clear. We could see even, uh, even to under, seek even to understand again that Jesus' authority, He has authority over the physical world. We could take a closer look at a king willing to, to help feed physically and nourish his followers. We could actually even take, a, take the time to, to contrast. Jesus' first crowd gathering was to a Jewish audience. He's now in a Gentile land. And is feeding other Gentiles like us, pointing to himself as the, as the true bread of life, even to a Gentile people. And friends, all of these would be right, and all of these would be good, but given Mark's arrangement of certain events, stories of eyes and ears being open, Jesus confronting a general lack of understanding of the disciples, what I believe is that our author finds it necessary for us to see Jesus re-highlighting these truths to show us just how forgetful we can be. But even more so, how willing Jesus is to help let the message of the Gospel sink in and stay at the very forefront of our minds. See, when we teach, we constantly point to Jesus if we're faithful. When Jesus teaches, though, He points to Himself. He constantly puts Himself on display. You see, throughout all the Gospels, see, even though the miracles might not look as strikingly similar as we're seeing these two miracles exist today, Jesus is through Himself proving and reteaching that the Kingdom of God is at hand. And our response is that our response should always be the same. Repent of the kingdom of man and believe in the kingdom of God. You see, it's man's kingdom as we learn where little children die. It's God's kingdom where He brings them back to life. In man's kingdom, people can be oppressed by demons and gods. They are cast out by His authority. In man's kingdom, the storm can take us over. In God's kingdom, the storm is calmed. In man's kingdom, people suffer. They're mute. 
They're lame. They're blind. They're deaf. People forget. They fall. They have lapses in judgment. They are rebellious. And the commands of God fall on deaf ears. So, here are the disciples and they're in this strikingly similar situation. Crowd of people listening to Jesus for an extended period of time. What naturally happens? The crowd gets hungry. Food is not easily accessible in the first place in this time period, let alone that they are in the wilderness. And guess what? We don't even have many grocery stores that could fit, fit, feed this many people at one given time anyway. So, finding this amount of food would have been a problem. And in fact, they've probably only seen this done one other time, and you think that that wouldn't be too hard to forget. But listen to verse 4. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Don't you find it almost bizarre why Jesus wouldn't just say right off the bat, you know, I did this before with more people, in fact. You know, I can simply do this again. But Jesus doesn't do that. Seemingly without hesitation, Jesus begins replaying the miracle. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. So again, Jesus takes the time to express his compassion, his care, his power to a new group of people. He nourishes them physically and spiritually, holding true to his illustration in his first miracle that they look like sheep without a shepherd. I do want to take a second here to call attention to something Mark actually says twice in either miracle. And he says a simple statement. He says, and they ate and were satisfied. Now we would be obviously remiss if we somehow claim that all these people that uh, people somehow came to Christ and were satisfied not only physically but also became his followers but ever since the beginning of time to contrast this satisfaction has no doubt been outrageously problematic for us Adam and Eve were not satisfied with all that God had given them in the garden They had to have one more thing. You'd think the disciples would jump at the opportunity here to trust in Jesus for their satisfaction again. He satisfied them once. Why can't He just simply do it again? I heard a wise man once say that the very essence of the Gospel is not that Jesus came to satisfy our appetite. The essence of the Gospel is that Jesus came to change our appetite. Jesus is not only teaching a message of repentance and belief, He is reteaching this message because we contend with a flesh that can never be satisfied. We are broken and unsatisfied. After Jesus' first feeding, the crowd follows Him, if you remember. And Jesus says, you only follow Me because you want your fill of loaves. Hunger, friends, never goes away. Thirst never goes away. Paul in Romans helps us understand the destructive path that the flesh can never leave us satisfied. In Romans 8, 5, and 6, he says, 
or those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You see, the character of Jesus is that He would come in the likeness of men. He would contend with the very same unsatisfied flesh that we do. He, the very same forgetful mind, and teach us and reteach us because He empathizes with the finite character of man. We all have Bibles, I pray, and in our homes and every Bible within it is the same message, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, page by page is that we can't do it we are forgetful and there is only one that will never ever forget and he will come and share the message over and over and over again friends the miracle this miracle's placement i believe affirms that jesus is not only teaching the gospel he is constantly reteaching the gospel because our second truth we must wrestle with holds truth we forget the satisfaction of Jesus' Gospel teaching every day. Again in verse 10. And immediately he got into the boat and his disciple, with his disciples and went to the, to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now Jesus, just, just having come off this miraculous display of power, we see has two unsatisfied sets of people he has to contend with. The first we see, Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees. Now what's interesting, if you pay close attention, is not that these men, you see, these men have probably likely heard of Jesus' miracles, maybe even been witnessed to or known people who were witness to them personally. But they come asking for a sign. Now, if we understand this, I believe the way that it was needed or is intended to be, they're asking for some sort of confirmation. Miracles were not exactly what they were looking for. They're not satisfied with what they have seen. They need more. They need flat-out confirmation. Nothing short of a voice from heaven or an appearing of God the Father Himself saying, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. See, it's at this moment, um, I pray we feel the weight of the burden of a teacher. Faithfully teaching the Gospel. In fact, laying it right in front of them and it's not good enough. What's such a big deal is that these men are, are not just not understanding the Gospel message. They're rejecting the messianic confirmation God is giving them. You might say, well, well, if Jesus is right in front of me, that would be all that I would need. Friends, believe it or not, Christianity does not work that way. If you don't believe me, that would mean that every single person that ever saw Jesus would be a Christian. And we know that not to be the case. Hebrews 11 says that in verse 1 through 3 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, 
we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You see, we are justified by faith. We are not justified by knowledge. Signs don't make it happen. Countless people are spending an eternity separated from God because they spent their lives pursuing signs through a pursuit of knowledge. Jesus' command to repent and believe was an impossible command because the faith that requires it is in and of itself a miracle, better yet, a sign. It is the evidence of things hoped for. It is the sign of complete and impossible redemption. The sign they sought would never satisfy them because that sign is faith. Faith is the evidence that God has infiltrated your life with His grace and in you would have been, that you've been humbled by Him. We could blow the doors off this church every single time somebody gets baptized. Or we share communion together. Because that's evidence. Evidence of faith that we remember what Jesus has done for us. I love it when Paul, interestingly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he makes the, the Corinthians understand that the evidence of Jesus resurrecting was no doubt physical, but there was more to it than that. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, beginning in verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred others at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of these, or least of the apostles. We're unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The reason I love Paul's words here is because while he tells of the physical evidence of Jesus' resurrection, which no doubt happened, he is satisfied in that Jesus gave him faith. Paul, by God's grace, bebopping on his way to persecute more Christians, repent and repents and believes in the gospel. Why? Because Jesus infiltrated his life. God satisfied Paul's appetite because he changed it. Paul was not the same man. He was a man who had been given faith. The faith that the only man on the planet has ever had. The only one man worthy of faith is Jesus and He freely gives it to us. Jesus offered a heart of change. A heart of repentance. A heart of belief. A sign the Pharisees were not satisfied with. A sign they had frankly rejected. They had rejected the heart of Jesus. You see, Jesus' reaction to this rejection of such a miracle tells us that He cares. 
when people reject or manipulate his teaching. Friends, I pray that we're not here to look a certain way. To gain head knowledge about Jesus. And frankly, then we just come here week in and week out and just leave unsatisfied. Because the gift of faith, the true gift of Jesus, is not what we're looking for. Brothers and sisters, Jesus cares when people reject His message like a father contending with his children who refuse Jesus. The pain is real because the consequences of saying no to Jesus' kingly command of faith are everlasting. Jesus, though having just contended with this group of Pharisees, these unsatisfied Pharisees, believe it or not, has to go at it again. The second group of unsatisfied people are not his enemies. They're not strangers. They're sadly his closest pupils. Jesus' burden gets into the boat, likely looking for comfort, some sort of help, support. But let's look again at what happens in verse 13. And he left them and he got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one, lo- one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I, broke the, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Now Mark, he, he sets the scene here like you would, like you would think a director uh, would set the scene for a movie, calling attention the details. Jesus gets into the boat. Mark, is fo- Mark focuses, though, on, on the only loaf of bread uh, the disciples brought because they had forgotten to bring more. And he quotes Jesus, uh, who is taking, again, the present conflict as an opportunity to teach. He's using this as a teaching moment for his learners. And likely with a heavy heart, what does he say? He says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. You'd think this might be a really good moment uh, for his pupils to just come alongside their teacher, affirm his teaching, defend him, maybe even give those Pharisees a piece of their mind, right? That's not exactly what takes place. So Jesus explains the situation. Even tells them a mini parable expressing the danger of the unsatisfied position of the Pharisees and of Herod. Like a leavened piece of dough added to the whole will spread, meaning rejection of Jesus' teaching will spread and the consequences again are eternal. Sadly, this leaven begins at the very top of Jewish culture. It's a big deal. But how the disciples, if we pay close attention, respond to this is almost comical. It's as if they hear the words of Jesus and just kind of slough them off instantly. Right there in the next verse it says, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So instead of taking the time to comfort Jesus 
And at the very least, take a minute to just hear what he has to say. They slough it off, and, and frankly, they focus on the one detail that doesn't even matter. Jesus' bread illustration, instead of eliciting deep biblical thought, reminds them that they're hungry for bread. Occasionally, I get the opportunity, uh, hopefully every day, but uh, to share deep gospel truth with my children, right? You sit down, and you're sharing the gospel. You're so excited about this teaching opportunity. Um, you're saying, this is the moment. They're primed. They're ready. They're never going to forget this. And you get done, and they say, are we done? Can I go outside? Can I eat? Friends, we just found what amounts to be the opposite of a fast in Scripture. When fasting, we deprive ourselves of food in which these hunger pains drive us to feast on the words of Jesus' teaching. Here, Jesus' teaching just makes them hungry. Don't, the idea here is that you can almost sense this holy eye roll uh, within Jesus. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? It's as, it's as if Jesus is, is just saying, you're not picking up on my parables, so let's just use some plain language here. Let's use some strong words. The first time I fed the crowd, I provided for you. The second time I fed the crowd, I provided for you. This time, you forgot to bring what I provided on the way. The disciples are so forgetful. Based on their reaction, uh, one would scarcely believe that they're even, they were even at the feeding of the 5,000, the original miracle. You see, throughout this Gospel, Jesus confronts their lack of understanding. Stories upon stories of, of Jesus having to teach and reteach because their flesh is getting in the way. Probably one of the most profound examples in all of Scripture is, is Peter denies Jesus, or Peter, excuse me, Jesus foretells of Peter's denial of him. And what does Peter say? He says, I, I would die before I would do such a thing, Lord. What does he do? Just a few hours later, he doesn't walk out wearing a Jesus t-shirt. He walks out and denies him three times. Why? Because he forgot the words of Christ. You can see, the idea is that we're seeing a pattern. We're not really doing this to shed light on the forgetfulness and the absent-mindedness of a few disciples. We should be asking ourselves, is this me? Yes, it's you. Yes, it's me. We forget to read our Bible. We forget to nourish ourselves with God's Word. Like men that are fully equipped with the nourishment of God right at their fingertips, we get into the boat and we leave the nourishment ashore. If you remember the grumbling Hebrew people um, that had just been released from captivity, um, led through uh, the Red Sea. They only begged to go back because even though they were slaves in Egypt, at least there they were well fed. 
Friends, Jesus is the feast. The Gospel message is the feast. We labor week in and week out to bring each other the same message because we are that forgetful and choose to feed ourselves with loaves rather than with Jesus. Martin Luther once said, um, we need to hear the Gospel every day because we forget it every day. Every time we sin, we forget the Gospel. Our flesh that needs to be fed makes us forget the Gospel. We struggle so deeply with our flesh that we forget how satisfying Jesus is. We forget His miracles. We forget to repent. We forget to believe. And if we come full circle, we understand that our forgetfulness is unacceptable to God. It's the reason we sin. It's the reason we rebel. It's the reason we aren't good friends to other people that need us. Our hearts are filled with lust and greed, and the list goes on. Jesus doesn't mean anything halfway. His commands and our flesh are incompatible. They don't work. We will always forget and never will be satisfied Understanding will always slip through our fingers. You see, God could have easily have left, had left the Hebrew people in the wilderness after having just delivered them from bondage and just said, okay, just go ahead and fend for yourself. Jesus could have easily just said, let me ashore, I'm getting out, I'm done. We might think that so many have abandoned us before. Why wouldn't God just reject me too? As forgetful as I am, shouldn't God just forget me? The cross should be the end-all, be-all representation of how sinfully forgetful we are. Why Jesus had to come and why Jesus had to die. Because you and I can't remember a command of God for five minutes to save our lives. God back in the garden could have left us to our own devices and said, you're so smart, you just figure it out. But that's not what He did. He made provision after provision to make sure His Word got there. To make sure the lives of His children, children would be infiltrated by His grace. You see, what our text doesn't exactly say uh, today, but implies is that Jesus didn't get out of the boat. He stayed. We know that He continued to teach all the way to the cross and has risen and is still teaching us this very moment. Lastly, um, our shortest, but I pray most important truth for today is that God's grace never forgets His forgetful, unsatisfied children. And before we let ourselves be crushed under the weight of our sin. Jesus' command to repent and believe, or as we've learned today, is to have faith. He actually did not intend for that to be done by you. Jesus, our most excellent, excellent teacher, would impute all of His knowledge, His teaching, His very own faith would land right on you. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus would do all the remembering. 
Jesus would never forget a single command of God. Jesus would obey His Father in every way, even if that would mean creating a cosmic tear in the Trinity, dying for your sinful forgetfulness on the cross. 1 Corinthians 5.21 reads, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you come here last Sunday? Heard the Gospel and forget? Maybe you forgot right in your seat today. Maybe you fell this week to a sin that you haven't in years. And you're being crushed under the weight, feeling like you haven't grown at all. Maybe you're bearing the shame of sin and forgetfulness. Friends, if we're honest here, many sects of so-called Christianity, those even very prevalent in our very own culture, are set up to make you believe that Jesus forgets His grace. If you don't follow all the rules, you will be left behind. If you sin bad enough or are not the Christian you feel like you should be, God will forget you. Friends, such a teaching is a lie. When I was studying this text, ironically, I forgot a very important conversation uh, that Jesus actually had on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due punishment, or the due excuse me, reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, um, this famous story, often kind of short-sightedly used to highlight how little the thief on the cross was doing and kind of ignores how much Jesus was actually doing right next to this man to remember him, to fulfill his request. You see, us coming to faith in Jesus is not us staking a claim that we will never sin or forget or even always be satisfied with Jesus. Faith in Jesus is that we will, He is the one who will never forget His grace. Jesus gave us Himself. The sign we have is Him. We have His faith. We have faith in Him. We make a conscious decision, yes, to have faith in Him. Yes, that command was for us. But at the same time, we have to understand that it's Jesus' Spirit who helps us. He gave us the Word so that when the sheep hear His voice, they listen. He gave us prayer to have a relationship with Him. He gave us a church, another group of forgetful people that week in and week out, we can teach each other the Gospel and help each other into the boat with the nourishment that we need. I love the, the depths of knowledge that King David uses in Psalm 139, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Jesus' command to repent and believe was not a rule to follow. It was a promise made by our teacher stating while you must certainly follow my command what Jesus was really saying is this is how I'm going to change you I'm going to change your relationship with your forgetful unsatisfied flesh and turn you into a repenting believing person and lavish my grace on I will do so through faithfully teaching and reteaching you my gospel because you have a forgetful, unsatisfied flesh to contend with. But rest assured, my grace through faith in me, I will never forget my grace for you. You will spend an eternity with me where your being forgetful and unsatisfied will be nothing more than a memory. Friends, I pray we see very similar miracles, but very strikingly different ideas. Today I want you to walk away with three takeaways. Number one is remember Jesus' teaching. You see, this text should help us remember that while Jesus is responsible and gets all the credit for remembering, he does expect 100% of your effort. Study the Word. Come to church every Sunday. Come to small group. More so, surround yourself with other men and women that actually know the things that you forget, that actually know the sins that you fall prey to, Ask them to help you remember. Yes, you and I are that forgetful. Come week in and week out and be retaught the gospel. Be encouraged by what Jesus has done for you. Our second takeaway is obviously help others remember Jesus' teaching. Help others remember the gospel. Be preventative in those measures. Watch them when they get down. Be the first on the scene to remind them of the Gospel. Hunt one another down when we forget. Lastly, rest in the faithfulness of God's grace. He will never forget you even though you so often forget Him. You can't imagine how forgetful you are. What's more, you can't fathom how big God's grace is. Brothers and sisters, we're going to continue to worship through singing and, and responding to our text. But as we are confronted today with our forgetfulness, 
the whole point of today is not to reflect on how forgetful we are, but rather how amazingly remembering and faithful that Jesus is for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your words. Father, we thank you for your wisdom and your grace. Father, a simple message which cannot even hold a candle to Father how faithful you are, but I pray that your words, not mine, transform us. As we respond today, Father, I pray that we respond in faith. Father, a repenting and believing people. Father, people that have been infiltrated by your grace. Evidence, the sign that we are yours. Thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond.